This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Welcome to a very organic Paddock Pass Podcast. The last time the three of us are actually going to be in the same room recording a Grand Prix review. David, you're looking yes. quite comfortable there on the sofa in your Airbnb accommodation in Valencia Town Centre and um, I'm just trying to work out whether you are more enthused about the Grand Prix we've just had or about the upcoming test which is going to take place in the next 24 hours. How is that even a question? <laughs> okay. I mean like just think of what we're going to I mean like Mark Marcos on a Duque yes god that is really exciting. But nobody can say anything. No, it doesn't matter. Franco Morbidelli, that's going to be interesting to see on Educate as well. That's going to be very, very, uh, very intriguing. Just the garage in uh, the Cristina garage is going to be interesting. Mark is on the other side of the garage. There's so much going on. Uh, you know, Yamaha's new bikes, uh, the the new Honda, apparently they've got some some sick aero upgrades. Uh, you know, what have KTM bought? What have, And particularly, what chicanery and trickery have uh, G has Gigi Delinia been up to all this time that's what I want to see well unlike you slackers I went to the circuit today on Monday and um, I have to say that KTM's aero is going to make everybody um, quite impressed I think I managed to get a sneak peek but considering this podcast is going to be going out while the test is on uh, then you know it's not like there's any great revelation to come so it will already be out there and very visible as soon as the garage doors roll up. Will you be there, Dave, at 10 a.m. in the morning? Well, I am because uh, Gigi Delinia is speaking to the media at 9 a.m. on uh, Tuesday morning. Oh, okay. So you're going to be first in line. But Gigi, as we've said before, is a master of talking a lot and saying nothing. Uh, he is very good at that. And he'll probably be the same, but still, you know, occasionally if you, you can wheedle sort of half of an an uh, answer out of him if you're clever. It's been two minutes almost of the podcast now, and I think we should stop ignoring Neil. Maybe we can bring him in. <laughs> Is it something I said? <laughs> no, not at all, Neil. We, we love you, mate. How are you feeling? Because uh, you know the end is nigh. It is, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, feeling pretty world-weary, if I'm being completely honest. Up there with the uh, sort of end of 2020 feeling when we had, well, I don't know how many races and how many weeks, but yeah, it's been a long, long season, but um, plenty to talk about today. Yesterday... Sunday was pretty exciting, I have to say. And uh, yeah, I think we have a pretty fitting champion at the end of it all. Yeah. As always, thanks to Renthal Street for backing the podcast. As you heard at the top of the show, they've been with us all the way through this year and the last year. I hope they'll be with us next year. We're talking about that at the moment. If you have a road bike, then Renthal is definitely the place to check out for any accessories, spares, any upgrades you want to make to your ride, then head over to the website. They are not only kings of off-road, but also of the road. So, yes, and we've got a, a rental street session, an exclusive interview with Paulo Spargaro a bit later in the podcast. We'll drop that in when we get around to talking about Valencia itself. Um, of course, the final Grand Prix of the season, but as is always the case, tends to be the final Grand Prix of a rider's particular chapter of a career. And that was the case uh, with Paul on Sunday. But um, we have, I don't want to say a new world champion. We have a re-world champion. Uh, some of the stats being thrown around, guys. Pekka Bagnaya, the first rider to defend the number one plate. Can I just say that's absolute garbage? 
Uh, I mean, like, it, 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 success, it doesn't mean anything successfully defend the number one plate. It's a completely concocted um, a statistic. I mean, genuinely, and Mar- Marco said all also about this, uh, uh, about Peko's achievement, defending a championship is much more difficult than winning a championship. Winning a championship is really difficult, but defending it is twice as difficult. So it's an incredible achievement, fantastic work by, uh, by Banyaya, but it's got... Um, absolutely sweet Fanny Adams to do with the fact that he's got the number one plate on. I think that is absolute nonsense. Uh, Dave, you have a fresh coffee in your hand and it's the test tomorrow. It's the test tomorrow. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I better calm down again. Right, okay. Well, Pekka Bagnaya, Neil, uh, successfully defended the World Championship, as we said. I have to admit, I predicted this in our our Patreon note show. Uh, I said Pekka would do it on Saturday and you guys plump for Martin. No. So, are you going to no, acknowledge no, my? No, we went. We went for Martin to win the race and Peko to win the championship. Really? Yes. Yeah. Get your facts right. Yeah. So no, we're no, no, so no. we're only fifty percent wrong. Well, come on now. This is your moment to lead into your fine performance when it comes to selecting riders this year. Where are you currently in the fantasy league? Twentieth, uh, but most crucially, I think that's about six places ahead of Steve English, and maybe a hundred, <laughs> two hundred places ahead uh, of both two, of you. Two hundred and uh, two hundred and twenty-nine uh, places ahead of me. So yes. Well, I knew my team had gone down this morning when I looked at it for one Grand Prix and realised I hadn't deselected Danny Pedrosa from Misano. So I think that was uh, some somewhat. Uh, yeah, some negligence on my part. But uh, listen, we've been faffing around too much. Dave, straight over to you. Your moment of this uh, 20th Grand Prix of the season, what stuck out? There were so many moments this weekend. But for me, I think uh, one of the special moments for me was seeing Mark Marcus on the sprint podium uh, after the, uh, the, the sprint race. Um, he was really struggling to hold it together. It was a really emotional moment. Uh, it sort of encapsulated his journey to the end of the Honda uh, partnership he was there he was he was going to do anything to be on the podium this weekend because it was the way that he wanted to reward his team especially he talks about my people and by his people he means specifically his team um, a little bit of Honda but mostly the team the the, the people he's worked for for all these years also I thought having the sprint uh, the the sprint podium where it was in the middle of the fan area uh, yeah, sort of point. in the entrance in the in, in the Valencia in the, the Valencia circuit, absolutely fantastic, just superb, an amazing atmosphere. MotoGP um, should do that more often. We need to sack off the regular podiums because the regular podium places are um, a bit crap, really. Whether well, they, they need to be in amongst the fans, and it was great. And seeing that outpouring of uh, of emotion from Mark, it. it yeah, no, it was it was very special. That's a very sentimental choice for you, and it's very positive as well. Until you got to the end and said started using words like sacking off. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, and if it, listen, keep talking. What would you, how would you grade the Grand Prix? Well, I mean, would you would you get a healthy number out of ten? Um, I remember Neil on Sunday saying he thought it was a good race, and I agreed with him. But you weren't so impressed. No, it was just I mean, like it was. Uh, I was so in my uh, Sunday ri- uh, uh, roundup, I said it was it was it was like basically like a five actor sort of thing. It was a four act play with so much going on. Shakespearean. It was a, it was a bit Shakespearean, yes. Um, with a nice little epilogue as well with uh, uh, with the whole tire pressure conundrums going on. I think I'm going to give it a seven out of ten because it was um it was just very odd. But the atmosphere, ten out of ten. Uh, the the racing. Uh, uh, parts of it there was a sort of a 2 out of 10 and then right at the end it was uh, we're absolutely 10 out of 10 again so yeah it was I mean I enjoyed it 
You can tell you're used to staying in Airbnbs. How many grades you want to go in for? That's what you know. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I'm going to give it a good nine purely because it was capacity crowd, great atmosphere, as you mentioned. The race was unpredictable just when you thought people were going to run away with it. Uh, we had the two championship contenders going at it for the first two laps. Disappointing, my team made that mistake, uh, you know, with the accumulative effect of his slipstream into turn one. So, yeah, I'll go for a solid nine. And my moment, uh, Neil, I mean, we're fans of football who doesn't like a good bit of shithousery and on Saturday uh, Jorge Martin doing his best to rattle the ultimate king of cool uh, which is Pekka Bagnaya there's probably no other rider in the paddock at the moment who knows how to handle pressure and just to work his way up to peak performance in a very systematic methodical way so uh, yeah that was cool I thought you know props to Martin for trying to sort of shake the cart a little bit on Saturday it was funny I think the turn eight didn't he follow Pekka right off the track um, yes. There's, I mean, yeah. it, and even Marquez, I don't think, has stooped to that level in terms of uh, trying no, exactly. to shadow no, a rider this season. No, it was, it was, it was very, it was very Marquezian. Yeah. So I mean, that was the first time when this team Peco, team Martin thing, you know, f- fair play to Dorna for really hyping that up, even though it didn't make much sense. Uh, it should have been Team Bagnaya, Team Martin, as we mentioned before, but it was pretty cool to see. Neil, your moment. My moment was well. I mean, there was probably about thirty seconds at the start of lap six, I believe. Ultimately, the the kind of the thirty seconds that decided the championship, uh, Zarco, Mark Marquez, Vinales, Martin, Olvine for I think fourth place at the time, and uh, they all go into turn two together. It was a big mess. Basically, Zarco comes out in front ahead of Marquez. Martin behind him tries to line up Marquez down into turn four. Goes in. Mark tries to tough it up, tough it out around the outside, and uh, basically, Martin tags his rear tire flicks Marquez over and uh, runs into the gravel himself. And yeah, it was uh, it was the moment that obviously um, cemented Banyai's uh, place as the champion this year. And um, I kind of think it's sort of underlined just why Jorge Martin fell short. We'll come on to this, I guess, a little bit um, as the podcast goes on. But yeah, he was maybe just a little bit too eager, too impatient, I think, is how he described it afterwards. And uh, I mean, a dramatic moment to kind of essentially decide the championship in, in Peco's favour. Valencia is a weird track, a weird place. Uh, of course, the stadium setting makes it quite unique, but then you're quite far away from the racing. But then it does have the old end of season vibe. There's always a lot of guests. The paddock was rammed. I think Mark has joked on Saturday it was back to sort of 2009 pre-pandemic levels. So uh, what's your view of it? What would you grade this Grand Prix as? And would you recommend it to people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a 10. Weather was great. We had a championship on the line. The championship was decided on the Sunday Lots of stories, lots of drama. Um, I mean, what wasn't there really to, to like about this weekend? You know, a full capacity crowd on, well, almost capacity on Sunday, massive crowd on the Saturday as well. Um, I, yeah, I don't see how you could really have any issue with this uh, with this weekend, aside from it being at the end of the season when we've had a, a run of nine it, races in it would have been eight races in 10 weeks yeah it would have been fantastic if it hadn't have been uh the, the eighth race uh eighth race in 10 weeks and so was it 10 10 races in what 11 12 13 weeks insane yeah well this time next year we would have done 22 so two more don't Grand talk about that. loaded into all oh, right really how about the fact that there's only 104 days until qatar next year is that Cheering you up. Can no you um, can you talk about the Sepang test? Because I'm quite excited about that. I'd rather <laughs> talk about that. Isn't that about another four or five podcasts later on, Dave? Are we not getting ahead of ourselves? We are a bit. Okay, listen, seven Grand Prix wins, 15 podiums, I think, Peko Bagnaya. Can we agree justice was served, even though you could say Jorge Martin was the king of the sprints, nine victories in, on Saturdays. Undoubtedly, the 
fastest rider we can say in MotoGP this year. Wow. But then a few critical mistakes. I think Bagnaia had three, three, maybe four DNFs, but then Martin just seemed to drop the ball at a crucial time. And uh, Dave, let's not forget, at the start of the Grand Prix, Michelin opened the Valencian race by saying we took Jorge Martin's tyre from Qatar, analysed it, and that we couldn't really find any defects, which kind of... Uh, started a little bit of a theme or an undercurrent of conspiracy to the weekend. Yeah, no. Um, also, there was there was a lot of. Uh, uh, I think, I think it was on Saturday that they that we got a, uh, a comments from Piero Terramasso, which were quite obvious that he was getting sick of all the bitching about the about the tires. Um, someone was complaining of a, of a vibration on one side, and Jaramaso said, mate, it's bloody set up. It's got nothing to do with the tyre, you moron. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not verbatim comments. But. No, not... <laughs> Not quite verbatim, but that was very much that was very much reading between the lines. There, you could tell that there'd been a number of uh, a number of swear words taken out of it. Uh, so yeah, that th- this is the trouble. It, I mean, like the, the whole tire thing. It, a lot of it is voodoo. A lot of it is so complicated. The magic, the man, the, the fantastic thing about motorcycle racing is motorcycles are incredibly complicated. Um, dynamic vehicles. There are so many different aspects to it, and it's really it, it makes it very difficult to actually pin down what's going on, which is good because otherwise we'd all be going equally fast, you know. And uh, people will get ideas; they'll find different ways of doing uh, of doing things, and um, it's very complicated. But um, yeah, there was um, uh, there there was a certain, a certain amount of that. But I mean, to get back to Banyaya versus. Um, Martin, uh, Martin himself said basically, you know, we weren't fast enough at the start of the year. Um, he said, like at the end of the year, I was the fastest rider, um, but they just let too they let too many uh, points go at the start of the season. That was why Peko uh, kept going. But I, what I did love about this championship is that both Peko and Martin were pushing each other further and further and further. You felt last year that. Um, uh, Fabio was letting Fabio Quattro was sort of like letting it slip. Yamaha were letting it slip, and uh, all Peko had to do was be consistent. This year, Peko or uh, Martin was really, really pushing Peko, and Peko had to step up, and that forced uh, Martin to push, and they were really pushing each other, and that made it a really great, uh, a great season. It wasn't always great racing, but it was a great season. When Bagnaia won the title, he, of course, gave a champion's press conference and he talked about how being more calm helped him this year. He also spoke about some of the mistakes and crashes. And I thought it was quite interesting in saying that when Jorge Martin fell off, like he did in Indonesia, when he had like a three-second lead and you thought, well, the Grand Prix's gone, you know, Martin was mystified. He didn't really know why he had come off the bike. And and Bagnaia said, the same thing happened to me in the United States. So that there is there is an element of this Ducati package that perhaps is still something it's still quite vague for the riders. But like you were mentioned a minute ago, you get to the point now of development of motorcycles where you're reaching such a a peak that Ducati are only going to make incremental upgrades, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that it's a fantastic motorcycle. Going back to uh, Banyaya at Austin, I recommend everyone or all of our. Uh, well, I recommend everyone sign up for our uh, Patreon because I have an interview with Christian Gabarini in there, and Gabarini is explaining uh, that he had words with Pekka. They uh, they had a very different view of what happened on um, uh, at Austin, and later uh, Banyaya came round to it. It was just a rider. That was just rider error. He was he was just pushing too hard. The same with uh, the the same with uh, Martin. Martin in uh, Indonesia was saying, yeah, I, I was just overconfident. You know, I uh, I believed too much, and it and it just got away from me. 
Yeah, Christian Gabarini, Pecco by Nice Crew Chief. Uh, check it out on Patreon. We have some more content on there as well throughout the winter. Neil, we mentioned that Jorge Martin was the fastest rider in MotoGP this year. Maybe he just lacks some of that, ex- that experience to build a championship. And do we have reason to believe that, you know, we're going to see him even better next year? Or is there some of that <clears throat> feistiness and inconsistency that, you know, Jorge has been known for? And it's, you know, he, he produced that this year, but he managed to get out of a few scrapes. I'm thinking like Indon- uh, in India, for example. I, I, you know, is this his peak or do you reckon we're going to see more? Uh, no, I think we're going to see more. Um, he did speak quite candidly yesterday about his feelings this year and his successes. And one of his big feelings, he said, was that um, the kind of pressure got to him a little bit in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, he said basically from Thailand through to Qatar, he didn't really enjoy any of those weekends and um, he was just kind of bogged down by the pressure, wasn't able to ride freely. And I think he was saying that uh, coming into the weekend, his trainer had said, look, I, I can see you from TV. It's clear that you're not enjoying yourself. When you enjoy yourself, you're able to ride a bit more free. And he said that was simply because he hadn't been in a position of this kind of pressure before, this kind of spotlight. He'd obviously fought for the Moto3 Championship back in 2018, but MotoGP brings with a whole different level of uh, of of kind of intensity and uh, and spotlights. So um, yeah, I think there's still there's definitely more to come. And just going back to whether he was the fastest guy. I mean, he was fastest for half the season, but there's no doubt that Pekka was faster in the first half of the year. Um, and really, I think it boiled down to the fact that uh, one guy was able to hold his nerve in really critical situations, and the other guy wasn't. I mean, Martin essentially lost the championship. With those two big mistakes in Indonesia and then Phillip Island where he was so much faster than everyone and he just kind of wasted both of those opportunities. You know, he should have scored victories in both of those occasions without question. But he said also yesterday that one of his kind of downfalls was uh, was it was a bit too much, almost pride. He wanted to prove just how dominant he was, how strong he was, that he could win in a soft rear tire when everyone else was going medium in Phillip Island or that he could win by more than three seconds in Indonesia. Peko for his part, knew exactly what he needed to get done. And um, I thought this weekend that we just saw here followed a kind of pattern that we've seen from Peko for most of the season. Crap on, on Friday. We're all thinking he's nowhere. He's in big trouble. He comes back to an extent on the Saturday. Maybe doesn't perform brilliantly in the sprint, but then we see Peko at his best on the Sunday. And that's you know just down to his relationship, I guess, with Christian Gabarini, his crew chief. With his crew, they're able to just incrementally gain incrementally gain through the weekend um and uh so many times this season i think back to the last eight races where you've thought he's up against it martin's got the upper hand and every time he's kind of come back with a response which i think has been super impressive whether it was um whether it was in indonesia when he qualified down in 13th you know he won that race on the sunday or whether it was in Qatar where Martin roughed him up in the sprint and he came back and outscored Martin on the Sunday again, or even here um, on the back foot on Saturday and he goes out and wins the race um, and, and holds his head even when he's under serious pressure from Dejan Antonio and Zarco at the end. So, yeah, fully deserving, I would say. You asked him in the press conference about Catalonia because, I mean, that, that crash must rank as one of the scariest and biggest of the season. He came back, you know, Mizano and those results he posted there, you know, I thought you were right in asking him this because it was a pivotal point in his championship bid. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have been the end of it. It could have been a complete disaster. I think at the time, um, as soon as we witnessed it, we were sharing some messages in WhatsApp just saying, well, there's a there's championship gone um, because it, it did appear that that was going to be a crash that put him out for the rest of the season. Never mind 
you know, maybe his career, you know, it looked that serious at the time. Um, but the fact that he was able to come back in Misano five days later, score a pair of third positions when clearly he was not physically right. I think afterwards, um, Paolo Chiabatti told uh, told a few of us last night that he wasn't right in India or Japan either. Um, I mean, that's another thing that we sort of just brushed off. That was a really serious accident, which obviously um, played uh, played a role in his performance for the couple of weeks after when Martin was, uh, was kind of flying so high. Yeah, I mean, not just serious in terms of injury, but serious in terms of psychological as well, because it was such a scary incident. You, you, you're there on track. He got run over. Uh, there's all those bikes around him. It was, it was absolutely terrifying. Um, one thing I'd like to make about a point I'd like to make about pressure about Jorge Martin. He's won a Moto3 cha- championship. If you win a Moto3 uh, Moto3 title, you're the best Moto3 rider in the world. If you win a MotoGP title, you're the best motorcycle racer in the world. That's a lot more at stake. Fair play. What about the Ducati equation? Because, Neil, the stats for the constructors win. I mean, we'll come on to this in a minute because there's been an announcement today about concessions. But, uh, I mean, Ducati, as we know, dwarf the grid, but they also dominate the the standings when it comes to this particular competition. We have no reason to believe that Peko Bagnaia's bike next year is going to be vastly different to, say, what Mark Marquez has next year. Uh, and I'm just wondering, guys, what is Jorge Martin's position now inside the Ducati structure? Uh, you now have Marco Bezzecchi, who we should also credit has been incredibly fast this year until he broke his collarbone in, in an off-season. Was it the ranch? I can't remember when he At broke it. the yeah. ranch, yes. So, you know, that kind of pretty much scuppered things for him for a period of Grand Prix. And uh, we'll talk about his race in Valencia, which lasted all of, what, 20 seconds uh, yesterday. But, yeah, I mean, Jorge Martin, I mean, does... Can he become like the darling of Ducati? Could he take an A. in his place next year? I mean, is he going to get impatient? He can't. I don't see him being like a, a like a Jack Miller or a Joan Zarco kind of sitting in Pramac for a while, just waiting for something to open up. No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, Banyai is Ducati's darling. He's the guy that they've molded this bike around. Um, he came into the factory team in 2021, and uh, obviously was able to bring a new kind of riding style with him that, uh, that, that that sort of extracted the best out of the, the Ducati, you know, a riding style that was pretty different to what Andrea Dovizioso and, and Danilo Petrucci could do beforehand. Um, and I think it's clear from how the Ducati factory team have been reacting over the last uh, couple of weeks that uh, Banya is clearly the number one guy. And Martin is, is now justified in thinking that he is the fastest guy in the championship and that he deserves to have his own factory working around him, listening to all of his requests and demands. Um, so I don't see it being a relationship that can last beyond 2024, to be honest. I think for by 2025, we're going to be see, we're going to see Martin maybe on a Honda, maybe on a Yamaha, um, maybe on a, I don't know, another place, a Aprilia perhaps. So um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think it's a long-term relationship that's going to last. I'm tempted to say that Davide Tordozzi would stand in his way, but as we saw in pit lane the other day, <laughs> perhaps it's not not the best tactic. No, uh, Davide Tordozzi will uh, not make... Uh, um, uh, well, yes, he's not going to make much of an impression. I think Neil is absolutely spot on. Um, Banyaya is the number one rider in that garage. The other thing is, this is pretty much the second time that uh, Ducati have um, uh, screwed Jorge Martin over. I mean, they haven't completely. That's, that's pointing a bit strongly. 
that's the way he's going to feel though the first year you know uh, they choose uh, Bastianini over him uh, the, the this time round they clearly favoured uh, Pecco over over him even though he got all the support had uh, access to all the data all the rest of it he's going to feel like he's lost out so yeah but the, the, the question is you know where does he go yeah and in Ducati's defence we should say that any update that Bagnaia got Martin also got whether it was the updated start, uh, start device that they were using from Austria onwards whether it was the kind of updated aero package with the wings on the front forks whenever the the update arrived on Bagnaia's bike it also arrived on Martin so from that angle Ducati can't be criticized but I think more in just terms of the feeling the sentiment um, it was pretty clear who was. Yeah, it was one. very much. Yeah, you really got the vibe from Jorge Martin that it was that it was us versus them. Um, even though Ducati were scrupulous about treating everyone the same, it was it, it felt like us versus them to Jorge Martin and to the Pramac team. Yeah, and one thing that he said yesterday, uh, I think it was our colleagues in Motorsport.com revealed Saturday night. It was in Martin's contract. If he won the championship, he would automatically go up to the factory team next year. He was asked about this yesterday after the, the championship was concluded. And he said, I think if Ducati haven't put me in the factory team now, then I'm never going to be there um, because I've done all that I can to show. And I'm still not there. So Really? No, I mean, it's got to be more about giving Bastianini another shot, really, isn't but it? But that indicated to me that he's all, he's feeling a bit. But maybe the Sepang victory really kind of underlying Bastianini's case if there was a moment where they were thinking do we or don't we then well they didn't win the championship so contractually it wasn't like yeah that. but you know there was a lot of talk then about the teams you know the team switch yeah and you know I think Bastianini then just cemented that his obvious potential uh, we posited at the time on the podcast you know would uh, Bastianini shine again at Qatar and he didn't really oh, well, I heard an interesting uh, little rumour from somebody uh, that uh, the big thing that changed for Anaya Bastianini was that um, not the thumb Pekka, break no, no no it wasn't the thumb break it was Pekka Banyaya said um, it came over to him and said look follow me around for a little bit and you can figure it out uh, so he followed, followed, followed him around realised the way that he had to change his riding and actually, cha uh, actually changed it and that was the big breakthrough for him so um, again why would Pekka Banyaya yeah, I do that because he wants an A Bastianini as a teammate rather than Jorge yeah. Martin. Well, well, Bastianini's story is that he's been trying to work out the engine braking issue when he's been fit, you know, with the Ducati. It's the same way that Jack Miller has taken a whole season to get his head around the electronics package with the KTM and trying to maximize the grip, particularly in the second half of races. Uh, moving on, should Brad Binder have won this Grand Prix? Oh, yes. That <laughs> Yes, yes, because he was clearly leading by a long way, and then he messed up, and then Jack Miller should have won the Grand Prix, and he messed up. Uh, but I mean, Dave, you blame Formula One. On I blame night. Formula, of course. Formula One to blame is to blame for everything. The thing is, um, Ab the Abu Dhabi F1 race, they want to start the race at twilight, and that means starting it in in Abu Dhabi, which means starting at two p.m. European time. Uh, MotoGP do not want to start the race at the same time as. A, uh, as the Formula One race because you know the only action that happens in a Formula One race is for the 35 seconds at the start uh, then it's you know uh, wander off for 90 minutes and come back to find out who's won um, that meant that uh, we started at 3pm and we really saw the temperature drop a lot during 3pm I think some of the photographers were saying the same sort of thing you really felt it uh, Paul Aspargaro was also saying the same thing that the, you really felt the, 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 the difference in temperature th uh, uh, as, the, as the day sort of went on 
Binder said his front tire just cooled down to the point. Yeah, where he it was said he locking. could feel he yeah. could feel chatter from it. You know, he, he was feeling he was feeling sort of vibration from the front tire. And he knew that he was in trouble, uh, and then it just sort of went. Same with um, uh, the, the the same with Jack Miller. He said like no warning, like he was pushing uh, through turn four and th- uh, five to try and get some heat into the right side of the tire, and then just as he flicked right through, I think turn ten. Uh, it just went without warning. So, uh, yeah, it was really difficult. You had to use the, f- the hard front tyre um, because you spend so much time on the, uh, especially on the left, you spend so much time on the side of the tyre, uh, especially with the new asphalt, the, the, the tyre wear was really hard. Although Jan Zarco did extremely well with a medium front tyre. Um, but, you know, er- everyone else was using the hard, hard front tyre. The risk with the hard front tyre was that you would lose it on some of the some of the corners you know that that you would suck the heat out i was hovering around the red bull energy station on sunday afternoon and pit buyer was giving his usual end of season address to the whole pira mobility group structure i mean there were the motor two motor three guys in there and uh, he was saying that uh it was actually kind of semi-bollocking the motor gp riders saying you you know you put put our hearts through the paces really in that race nil and it was true because Binder was brilliant, made a fantastic start, led. Actually, afterwards said he was quite happy that he didn't crash, you know, when he made his mistake going off the track and running almost into the gravel. Then, of course, Jack Miller leads. He makes the sort of half joke afterwards that it's the story of his career that he gets so near but ends up so far. And then Binder manages to come back a few bumps along the way. Alex Marquez, family, um, you know, off his Christmas card list, I would, I would assume. I, I gather that car's going to go straight into the crash if it does arrive. If people still do send Christmas cards. And then, of course, um, Binder elevated to third position. You know, when everything's done, uh, he gets belatedly the trophy. Uh, goodness, the second year in a row that KTM are on the podium um, in Valencia. But, I mean, what a, what a Grand Prix for them. Um, yeah, but also what a missed opportunity for them. Um, and they've had another season where they haven't won a race on Sunday. They won two sprints, obviously, courtesy of Brad Binder early in the year. But I get the impression that this is starting to really rankle with, with Brad, that he didn't manage to get a Sunday success under his belt. He didn't manage to get one last year either. But the bike was much better this year. Um, he was there or thereabouts more often than not in the second half of the season. And I think uh, Pip Barra told um, Gunther, Speed, uh, Gunther uh, Wiesnager of Speed Week yesterday that, you know, Brad saved our asses on many occasions. And it is true, a lot of times that Brad was kind of lone KTM up at the front of, uh, of a MotoGP race in the second half of the year. Well, the next bike is 11th in the championship. Sure. But there's also that slight feeling that he was he was there on so many occasions and didn't, didn't quite get the job done. I mean, he was second for the majority of the race in Phillip Island. That finished off the podium, five guys pretty much within a second. Um, he didn't manage to get the job done in Thailand and, in fact, ran off track, made a crucial mistake when he just exceeded track limits, uh, which demoted him from second to third. And then leading the race here, crashes out. I mean, obviously, conditions super, super tricky. And the fact that Miller crashed out as well showed that uh, maybe the, the, the KTM was a bit more critical on the front than the Ducati. But, um, but yeah, for a guy that Ducati aren't going to be getting any weaker next year, Martin Bagnaia, Bastianini, you're probably going to imagine, will be there. Um, uh, Mark Marquez, obviously, as well, the small matter of him. It's not going to be an easier challenge for KTM next year. And for them to step up, they need to start fighting for the championship. And with these kind of just little mistakes, um, I guess it is a valid question. You know, is Binder 
that guy to step up and I think he's definitely got the talent he's, and he's got the sort of determination but just a few occasions in the last couple of weeks I think he was just lacking to add that finishing touch to it. Yeah and to be fair on his debrief on Sunday night he's made exactly that point I made too many mistakes so he knows that he can't afford to keep doing it. It's interesting because he said also this was the year where he pushed over the limit he said you know you finally had something near the bike that he needed and he needed to see what he was capable of I mean Brad's a good egg isn't he he was saying that when he saw Jack was in front he thought okay well at least Katie are going to get one win this year and then it didn't work out did it um it also didn't work out for Paul Espargaro on the gas gas um Augusto Fernandez crashing out early it was like a I want to say a double non-score for gas gas but of course Paul picked up the bike and for two laps I mean the team said it was all bent out of shape you know they were full of props to him for actually getting it round to the checkered flag but uh, that was his last Grand Prix as a full-time rider for the moment. Um, again, we'll come on to the concessions in a minute, but uh, KTM in Group C, I believe, of the new rankings uh, or the criteria. So they will be guaranteed at least six wildcard appearances in 2024. So you imagine Paul's going to be taking most of those along with Danny Pedrosa. There might be a couple for Danny, but most will be for um, uh, yeah. most will be for Paul. But anyway, I mean, Paul's, you know, he was one of the most experienced riders in MotoGP. Uh, we managed to catch up with him. I grabbed some time with him uh, on Thursday, uh, just ahead of the Grand Prix, where he asked about riding Valencia and also some of the stuff of his career moving into the next phase. So, uh, yeah, here is our chat with uh, the Catalan. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, I wanted to talk to you here, especially because Valencia is been a pretty memorable track for you especially in in MotoGP class there's been some some pretty cool results what's your mindset what's your emotions I think the fans see you every race throughout all of your career as a very emotional rider someone who really has his heart on his sleeve and it's inspired quite a few people I think especially in this paddock so how how do you feel at the moment yeah thank you thank you for uh, for to invite me um yeah it's so nice to be here uh, and I believe it's going to be a very tricky weekend um Handling all the emotions going through that weekend is going to be difficult, you know, because also I want to really perform. It's not something that I really want to come here and just say bye-bye and leave. I really want to make a good weekend, and together with emotions, it's not so nice. Uh, when the emotions go through these kind of uh, levels of a sport, and it's never good. But anyway, I, I, feel, I feel very good. I feel very happy to be here in that. Uh, moment of my sport career after the injury to be racing again and uh, you know to race here in front of uh, so many people this weekend is going to be amazing very quickly tell me about this circuit because from the outside as a fan it doesn't look particularly inspiring but you know as a rider when you're looking for that final 10th is it a challenge is it, is it quite fun yeah it's I, I love it I love this circuit maybe because I've been uh, racing here since I'm I was like I don't know maybe 11 11 years old uh, but it's it's kind of a special. It's not so long. It's uh, not so big. I mean, it's pretty narrow. The grip is always has been very big, very high. <coughs> and uh, I always have been performing well. I don't know why, because maybe I started here since very little. And always, uh, you know, my people come here to support me, to help me. It's, I, I like to race here in Valencia. Is there one corner where you're almost closing your eyes a little bit, thinking, oh, I hope it goes well <laughs> through here? Yeah, there is a couple. The first ride, it's always very, very tricky because you spend quite a lot of time before the last corner, uh, already all these long left. Uh, then you arrive to the last corner of the circuit, which is left. All the straight, the first corner is left. The second corner is left. The third one is left, fourth left. And then you reach the first ride. And when you reach it, if it's cold and the, there is some wind, 
the tires normally on the right side are cold, and this is a big, big problem. Out of the Spanish circuits, Paul, I mean, Aragon, Barcelona, Guinness Valencia here as well. I mean, is there one that holds, one that you look forward to more than you come to? I mean, this one's always at the end of the year, isn't it? So the conditions are always tricky and special. Maybe this one. Actually, from all the races in Spain, um, I've never been good. For example, in Barcelona, I mean, I won in Barcelona, but it's not one of my, my best places. Aragon, it's not bad at all. <clears throat> Jerez, it's not. I, I won there also, but it's not nothing wow. But Valencia, normally I, I've been doing nice results, maybe from all the Spain ones. Valencia is the one. But what happens uh, Sunday, obviously, is going to be the race. It's going to be quite a cool way. I mean, not only is it the finish of a long season, but also, you know, a particular episode in your career. Uh, what happens like Monday and the next weeks and the off season? Because like maybe a professional footballer, You've always had the same routine for your most of your adult life, you know, since you were in this paddock at 14, 15 years old. So, you know, how does December and, and January kind of look for you? You're going to be in the same rhythm? You know what? This is my biggest worries. worries. You know, like, what I'm going to do? You know, I'm going to, you know, which is going to be my target to be training as I've been training because I need to keep training because I, next year I'm going to be in the MotoGP a lot of times and also racing a couple of races. So what, uh, how I'm going to feel and what uh, is going to go through my, my brain when, uh, you know, the guys are going to go to the first races of the year and starting in Europe in Jerez, what, what, what's going to happen in, you know, and, and it's something that I need to discover <laughs> by myself. I need to, for sure, I, I'm trying to put in my schedule for the next year a lot of things. Just I'm not, there is a lot of proposals of work or things related to this world. And I'm saying to all of them, yes, because I, I'm scared, not about, for sure, about a lot of things, but especially about the time, what I'm going to do with the time that I've been spending training and, and racing. I know you've been thinking about uh, Malaysia, about Qatar, about here, but is there one part of your brain that's kind of thinking, actually, you know, how will I do the next bit or what do, how do I need to be ready for the next bit? Do I need to be more in detail with the engineers or people back at the factory instead of at the circuits? Is there part of you that's thinking about this? Yeah, also. I mean, uh, my, my life is going to change pretty a lot, a lot. And, uh, you know, now I'm in the past in KTM, for example, I've been doing both, both works. Like I know what it is because I've been doing KTM, like um, developing a bike from zero and also racing, and that was so stressful. So I believe that just being in the other side, just uh, developing the bike, this is also quite interesting. You are the first one getting new stuff, new technologies, before the MotoGP guys, and this is so, so, so nice. And things that maybe are going to go, you know, for the amateur bikes on the street, the super bikes, or, or any kind of bikes that KTM or Gas Gas or the peer group mobility they have, gonna go through my hands which is nice it's so it's it's very nice so you you need to find the the best things in everything you do and that one is going to be one of them in the past when maybe mika or danny were testing the ktm and you maybe thought come on guys get a bit faster or something like that now you're in that position yeah. you know maybe uh they'll be looking at you saying paul you know what are you doing you're on holiday yeah i believe so <laughs> but uh, you know in every job there is a kind of a responsibility and i take it um, as a rider now, I have a lot of responsibility because we are moving through the the, the wall, spending a lot of resources uh, to do that job. If you don't perform, you are the you are the one. You are 
the one that people is going to point to. Maybe by being a test rider, you are in a second row that you are not so much on the TV. But also the, the work is very important. The guys are racing every weekend. Um, they are going to suffer or they are going to enjoy yeah, thanks to your work and also the work of the factory, you know, and this is important. When I've spoken with other athletes that are retiring, uh, they, there's been some comments like the, the competitive fire has gone down a bit or the, the desire to compete is, is diminished because of the, maybe the traveling or the pressure or something like this, but there's still a bit of, you know, I mean, you guys have to be different than the rest of us, for example, to do what you do. You know, on a, on a scale of 100%, I mean, how, how much does that fire to compete and still be a racer burn inside of you at the moment? Honestly speaking, I don't like racing. I like motorbikes. I like to ride motorbikes. I really enjoy when I go, uh, you know, on a weekend with my friends doing supermoto. And I, I, that is what I really love. Or going with a superbike on a track with... Also, all other amateurs people and spend the day there and just hanging around and talking about what we do and how I do the things I do to show them uh, why I can do what I can do. And this is what I like about this sport. I don't like racing. I think it's not healthy what we do here in MotoGP. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, we do every weekend, but it's not human healthy. We injure it ourselves. We just compete each other with an aggressivity that... I don't like to have this aggressivity to another human being in this world that we have here in MotoGP. Everything it's, you know, as the interests are rising up and the money and the resources they are putting in this sport, also this pressure becomes so much and you stop enjoying this motorcycle side to, 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 to do your work. And sometimes it's, I don't like this, but for sure, um, when I will stop completely from competing, then I will miss it. This is also, this is also true. Would it be important to somehow keep some intensity up, you know, whether you are training off the bike, motocross, flat track, whatever, uh, and then, I mean, who knows what could happen? You know, you, you know full well you, yourself, the experience of getting injured and, and uh, like the Gas Gas factory racing team needing a replacement. So uh, you kind of have to be ready just to step back in. That must be very difficult as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult for sure, like to be full motivated and training and be ready in case of someone injury to jump on the bike. Normally, you plan a little bit your, your season. Like, um, now we go to Qatar, then we go to America, then, okay, and you plan, okay, in Qatar, I'm going to suffer a little. Then in America, it's going to be better. And then you plan a little bit your psychologically statement in somehow to be ready for whatever is coming. But to be there at home and being called, wow. I mean, some of them, it's injured. You need to jump with this uh, crew with these mechanics with these people that you never have been working with uh, to this track that maybe you you don't like <laughs> you know it's something very very tricky so also you need to get ready for this it's another you need to to take it and to um, face it in a in a completely different way that I've been facing the things uh, since now in the last month and a half, have you had time to maybe think back on your career a little bit? I mean, you were one of the most exciting riders in 125s. You went to Moto2 and you were, it was a disaster the first year, but yep. then you won the world championship. The first year with KTM, I mean, the Yamaha years was good as well, but then the first race with KTM at Qatar, you were two seconds a lap off the yeah. best. Yeah. And then, you know, cycle forward a couple of years in here in, in Valencia and putting that same bike on the podium. I mean, when you think back, there's been some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's cool. It's very cool. I mean, 
for sure you need a lot of things around this. It's not just the rider jumping on the bike and making it happen. It's been uh, an, an amazing and super smart and intelligent people working in this project since the beginning that still some of them are in the factory and when we talk about this, we look like old, old, old <laughs> men, you know, like talking about, yeah, you remember when this happened? Or, and we had an amazing memories and, and uh, moments that we remember that they were, they are amazing, like, like, like things that people would not, never know, but we did it and it's, it's just insane. It's so funny. So memories at the end is what makes you the, the human being you are and make you change your character. And I think KTM in that years have changed me uh, massive, and I'm I'm super glad. Lastly, uh, I mean, you grew up in this paddock, as we said, from being a teenager all the way up to this point. Yeah. I mean, your connection you've had with the fans and the people who have liked you racing. Can you just talk a bit about that? Is that something that maybe is something else you'll miss, you know, in years to come? I don't know. I don't know what future is uh, is waiting for me, but. At the moment, I mean, I'm super grateful for what I did in my sport career. And for sure, everything I did is because the people is supporting me, is watching the motorcycle races and everything. Sometimes you, you forget about this, but it's the reality. We are doing what we're doing, not because uh, we, I mean, because we like it. Or we are doing because the people is watching us, because w- what we do, our sport is exciting. And uh, people like to sit down on the sofa and look at us uh, racing. And even if the people maybe doesn't know how to change a gear or doesn't know how to ride a bike, you know, people is looking at us and is enjoying with our show. And uh, this is what matters. So I'm super glad to, to be able to know the people I have known through my years. And, uh, yeah, this has made my, my personality more rich. And uh, I'm super grateful for that. Well, Paul, we know you're going to be racing next year um, and we look forward to maybe doing another interview asking you for some secret information on what's coming (laughs) up, which I'm sure you're not going to tell us. But uh, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a, a pleasure. Thank you to Gas Gas Factory Racing Tech 3. One other thing, Dave, you mentioned previewing the test is, of course, Pedro Acosta. I don't know, I mean, would it have been appropriate to maybe give him some sort of game console to get used to bashing buttons because he's going to be spending most of the laps <laughs> tomorrow in Valencia working out what, you know, red, yellow, blue and green does uh, on his motorcycle? Uh, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, to be honest, since he won the championship, he's just been totally phoning it in. He's been completely anonymous. So I think he's already been thinking about um, that anyway. Uh, he's probably been sitting in the KTM garage having a look at uh, and and having a go on everything. Well, it's a fair point what Neil said about having to step up KTM, the KTM group, the Pira Mobility group to win the championship next year because Augusto Fernandez, you would expect to be better. But then, of course, you have a rookie in the situation again. And as good as Acosta is, you need to give him a year. I mean, you know, Fabio Di D'Antonio is a perfect example of someone, you know, that needs a bit of time. And once they get their feet in MotoGP, their good results are possible. I would point out at this juncture that um, uh, Mark Marquez won, I think, his second Grand Prix in, uh, in, in MotoGP. On a Repsol Honda. On a Repsol Honda. That was pretty handy at the time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it probably was uh, the best Repsol Honda that there's ever been at that point in time, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we've made that point before, but you're you're, you're completely on the money. We need to talk about Mark Marquez because, uh, you you know, you mentioned Pedro Acosta phoning it in 
And Mark, you know, has been very cagey, very cautious in the last few Grand Prix. But this was one where he completely went out, you know, threw it out the window. And your moment of the weekend, Dave, as you talked about on Saturday, it worked perfectly. I mean, that was the, the, the state that the Repsol Honda is in at the moment means a good result in the sprint is probably the best they can hope for. Because over a 27 lap distance, you're asking a lot. Yeah, you are asking a lot. Just in terms of because he's riding completely on on risk management you know he's riding he's almost crashing in every corner he did say you know the track having more grip uh, that helps a lot it's one of his favorite tracks it's a left-handed track all of the things that helped him uh, it suited the bike a little bit more than some of the previous tracks that we've had um and he was going out in a blaze of glory whatever was whatever happened um he was in. He said afterwards, like you know, uh, Martin was riding for it, uh, to win a championship, so he fully understood it. But he said I was winning as if it were as if I was trying to win a championship as well, because he was desperate to get to, to get on the podium. Um, we saw him have a coming together with Marco Bezzecchi. Marco Bezzecchi was less than des- uh, delighted. He called him the dirtiest rider in MotoGP and a whole <laughs> lot of other things. That was him being polite. Apparently, he also went up to um, uh, Mark's office and had a little bit of a shout at him. Um, so yeah, it, it, it Mark told him pleasant. to get out of his office. Yeah, my, exactly. Yes. What? Who are you, and what are you doing in my office? He said, "I'm not going to waste any time on that person." Uh, so there's a, there's a nice little beef going there. But I think the, the, the thing is, I looked and saw the helicopter view. It's not a. It's not absolutely 100% clear cut, but um, it is quite clear that Mark Marquez was not going to be leaving any room whatsoever. Um, and uh, Marco Bezzecchi was behaving as if uh, Mark Marquez would leave uh, someone a little bit of room. So uh, I was surprised he didn't get a penalty. Normally you would get a penalty for that sort of thing. That was another thing which Marco Bezzecchi said. You yeah, know. he said he didn't get it because he's Mark Marquez. Yeah, exactly, which is peculiar. But um, uh, yeah, we'll see. But I mean, like, you know, Mark came to this race, to this weekend, to, to get well really to get on the podium he was always going to be either be on the podium or in the gravel the way they ended up in the gravel it was, was both like, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yes 100% score right, uh, there but um uh, the way he ended up in the gravel the second time was slightly less uh, his own fault than someone else i still think he had a certain amount of faults because he did you know he saw or he knew that martin was going to come but he was just closing the door not not letting him go he rolled off the throttle to get to carry a little bit more speed that was a racing crash i mean that was not yeah that was racing incident no that i mean that was that was a racing incident uh, not to apportion blame on that one y- yeah yes but if you're going to apportion blame they were both they they were both uh, in podium or hospital they were both in win it or bin it mode and so it was just it was an accident waiting to happen we, uh, from the front view, it looks like Mark just took a bit of track space that Bezeki had and sort of pushed him wide. Didn't know there was much contact there. And you kind of think, well, what are you complaining about, Bezeki? And then one of Mark's answers to us on Saturday was like, you know, he dismissed Bezeki because he said he's done that to him numerous times through the season, which, of course, we haven't really seen. You, you don't, you can't catch everything that goes on through the pack. But like you point out, Dave, if you if you kind of sense there's a, a you know a 93 Repsol Honda around you at Valencia in his last race, then you know he's not going to be given any quarter. No, exactly. But at the same time, I think Mark goes into that corner knowing that Bezeki's going to be going on that line, and there's going to be contact, and it's a pretty fast corner through turn number three. So, uh, if blame had to be apportioned, certainly it would be apportioned towards Mark. But he did it in just a 
about, I mean, it wasn't very subtle, was it? Because Bezeki ended up crashing and crashing at high speed. But um, he did it in a way where it was like, well, I was just taking it. I was just going for the gap because there was technically a gap there. But he was putting himself in a situation where for them not to have been serious contact, Bezeki would have relented. And, um, you know, it's the first lap of the race. So he's obviously not going to do that. It was a very Ducati, uh, it was very Gigi Delinear-esque really because it's not actually cheating but it is reading exactly between the lines where the grey area is where you can get away with it. He's well suited. Uh, yeah, he's going to be, he's going to be grand. Yeah, he's going to be, he's going to fit in really well. But on Saturday there was like emotion and there was a little bit of sense of occasion around Marquez but on Sunday, yesterday, after the race, I think you could see there was a little bit of a glint, like, let's get on with it now, you know, I wanted oh, yeah. to try this thing. I mean, it, it, the big shame of the test tomorrow is that you know, nobody's going to know anything about what he thinks. But then when Jorge Lorenzo climbed on the Ducati, if I can remember rightly, his test times were good. Everyone was thinking, wow, this is going to work. But then it took him what, almost half a season to get the ergo right on the, on the you know, the GP, yeah. whatever it was. And then, wh know, wh who, who was it? What race was it? It was after, so it would have been in Indonesia, I think, that someone was asked, um, uh, what's he going to be? What's he going to be like on the jigger? Maybe it was Peko, and Peko basically said, you know, he's fastest. He's fastest. Um, I think if Mark Marquez is not fastest tomorrow, or well, put it this way, I mean, they're all thereabouts fastest. So sort of within within a tenth or two, if he's half a second off, then I think it gets really interesting. But I can't imagine it. I think he ends the the the, the test tomorrow fastest. Yeah, it's just uh, it's not necessarily going to be about the times. It's going to be about the feeling and the feeling of what he can do, how far he has to extend himself to make himself fast. Going off of like, uh, his brother Alex's comments through this year, just saying automatically, straight away in the Ducati, you feel like you've got so much more capabilities, you're not having to extend yourself in certain areas. And I think it's probably going to be clear within the first five or six laps to him that this is a, a huge step up and he can be extraordinarily competitive because... I think it was Simon Crefar said over the weekend, if he can put, the, like, he's probably the only person in the world that could have put that Honda on the podium in the sprint race on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to get plenty of mileage out of this, but I think tomorrow could be the first step in Mark Marquez proving to everybody and the sport that, you know, he's probably the greatest motorcycle racer we've seen. Yeah, a, a satellite Ducati didn't win the uh, championship this week, uh, this year, but I, I would have a nice little wager on it w winning the championship next year. Just one small thing, you know, Mark's not in a, a factory team anymore. If he crashes twice tomorrow, I wonder if there's going to be that much, you know, resources to be able to keep running, you know, hot, strong laps. There's four, there are, uh, th th there's plenty of spares lying about. For Alex the will lend them his. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, combined him and Jeremy have crashed more than 50 times this year. Uh, yeah. You know, the Honda spares budget has been 29, bashed. I think 29, he reached 29. Uh, th that was his, his final crash total. Yeah. Well, that's the, the, the Mark Marquez subject closed. The new chapter, of course, opening tomorrow. So let's move on to our winners and losers from the weekend. Uh, let's first go to losers because there's quite a big one we can cite due to a new story that's been emerged, emerging over probably over the weekend. Really, There were talks and rumors that the Cryptodata and F Racing team were in some strife. And, um, well, in the last 12 hours, it's really kicked off with a series of interviews, statements and communications. And at the moment, the, the, the official word from Dorna is that that team will not be on the MotoGP grid next year, which means there is a gap for another squad to run Satellite Aprilia's and 
assumably, uh, you know, Ralph Fernandez and Miguel Oliveira, but it's messy at the moment. It, well, I think it's less messy than it appears from the outside. Um, I mean, just to walk through the, 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 the timing, first of all, we had rumours <coughs> that there were financial problems with the crew data or RNF team. Then there were rumours that they were going to get taken over by uh, the uh, Trackhouse Racing, which is a NASCAR team racing the, racing the oh, I'm not sure if the NASCAR, yeah, it's NASCAR. Are you talking about Justin Parks, I think? It's um, Justin Marks is the Marks, yeah, uh, yes, sorry. Justin Marks is the NASCAR racer. I know nothing about cars, so I don't know why I'm <laughs> saying all this. But anyway, um uh, Justin Marks is the ex NASCAR racer who runs it, uh, together with a young gentleman who I believe is known as Pitbull to the kids. Mr. Worldwide. Mr. Worldwide. Oh, right. Okay. That's what he calls himself. Okay. Well, Mr. Worldwide will be taken over. But anyway, that was the the rumor. Uh, Then we had Friday night, we had Razlan Rosali posting on Facebook, um, uh, uh, goodbye and thanks for all the fish. Um, uh, You know, it's been a great little uh, journey, but I'm stepping away. Uh, Then we had on Saturday night, so... uh, well, for Saturday morning or afternoon, we had a press release from Crypto Data saying we don't know what he's going on about. Uh, and then they, present- they presented their new partner. And then on Monday morning, we had another press release saying this is our new partner, Untold, which is a Romanian electronic dance music festival and uh, a really hopeful thing about the future. And then around shortly after lunchtime, we had a uh, press release from the FIM saying... Um, or from Dorna saying they are out, they've uh, not fulfilling their obligations, um, the CryptoData RNF team, uh, and that the team will continue as an independent Aprilia team, or they will, they will continue to be an independent Aprilia team. Uh, and then also Mr. Tomar, I think, from uh, the crypto data company said uh, he posted a something on Facebook saying uh, this is nonsense and we're going to sue and uh, we owe this and it's ridiculous and it's a circus and all sorts of uh, other various bits yeah, and pieces. Disparaging comments as well about how MotoGP does its business, which I'm sure MotoGP may be certainly antiquated and not the, the slickest operation in the world, but, uh, you know, he... he he must have known about it. He almost, I mean, he absolutely did know about it. So um, the I mean, the situation, I think, is that uh, there will the current team will continue. Uh, the riders yeah. will continue. Yeah, uh, Oliveira and uh, and Fernandez are contracted to. Uh, uh, to Aprilia, I think uh, some of the mechanics are also contracted to uh, Aprilia. They'll, we'll have to see who will actually run the team. I think there's a very good chance that we'll see that the, the trackhouse come in and actually sort of buy the team and pay the and pay for the team. Um, and uh, yeah, w- we shall have to see. But I mean, there was uh, there were always sort of question marks about the uh, about the whole crypto data organization. Uh, the fact that they still have open, uh, that they still owe some of the money which for the title sponsorship of uh, the Austrian Grand Prix. I think they pay for the first year, but the the, the second year is still owing. Um, it's an entirely, it, it's not a particularly transparent organisation. The way that things, what they do, and and all the rest of it. Uh, so it's not really a big surprise. But anyway, that was my loser for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I think in one way we can say, like, unfortunately, Portuguese, you know, MotoGP fans. I mean, Sport TV were there with the big kind of studio setup and coverage. Unfortunately, Miguel Oliveira wasn't riding. Now it's looking a little bit definitely unsettled what's going to happen. I mean, Miguel sh- it should be racing in Aprilia next year, but we just, it's incredibly late. Um, no, yeah, but I, I, I suspect, this is my personal theory 
I think that Dawner have been working on this for a long while uh, because these sort of things don't get taken... Uh, yeah, you don't make a statement in just a matter no, of hours. Exactly. And also they do say there will be an independent Aprilia team next year. Basically, uh, if needs be, Dawner can run the team. Dawna can actually pay and run for the team and wait for it, uh, wait for it to come through. So I suspect that it will, co- it will continue. That w- the the actual team staff and the actual riders are likely not to m- uh, to notice very much about it. Um, but there will be a lot of sort of it'll be a bit of a mess trying to clean it all out. We shall have to wait and see because you know threatening a lawsuit is one thing. Actually going to court uh, and having to. Um, expose yourself to uh, uh, go through all of the arguments and prove your point is an entirely different thing. Uh, threatening a lawsuit is fantastic PR. Um, going through the lawsuit can end up not being such great PR, so we shall have to wait and see what happens. I think, yeah, I mean, I can't see Miguel Oliveira not being on the grid and Raul Fernandez. They will be on the grid. They will be racing. We just don't know in what colour or uh, uh, who else is going to be involved. Neil, who was your Jorge Martin from the weekend? Oh, that is harsh. I know. There's winners, there's losers. Well, I mean, uh, Dave, Dave's loser had a bit of gravitas about it. Um, mine seems a bit tame, really, by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to just the sort of mere mechanics of racing. us in the Fantasy League. We've already covered that. Yeah, or us because we're old money by crypto data. Yeah. RDF <laughs> yeah. We, uh, yeah, when there's a statement coming from crypto that's the saying they've paid all their bills. Well, I just make a plea now for people that enjoy this podcast and they want to check out episodes of the RNF Unlock series that we've been posting. Which is very good. Yeah, it, the content is fantastic and it was all done earnestly and with good faith, but those episodes might not actually be on our channel for much longer. So <laughs> if you want to listen to some of it, then go and have a look um, because. Uh, sadly, uh, with a resigned voice, I do suspect we will not be seeing our uh, dues from that one. No, no, we are one of the suppliers that uh, has not been paid. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll not be bitter uh, about that. Um, oh, and th- by the way, just RNF staff, they've been fantastic, lovely people. Yep. Fantastic yeah. to work with. Nothing, nothing, nothing bad to, to do say with about them. them. It's uh, the, the, the higher the, ups. It's the higher ups. Wilco Zealandberg down. All good. Thumbs up to them. Yeah. Upwards, no. Um, yeah, my loser. Apart from us, on, in, in two senses. Yeah. If you can think of a third one, I'll be impressed. Yeah, my uh, loser has to be uh, Joanne Mir, just because it was a, a pretty grim ending to a awful, grim season. Um, crash on Friday. Um, I think from the moment that we heard that he was going to the hospital, it was pretty clear that he wouldn't be participating in the rest of the Grand Prix. Um, and all of this around the track that uh, he had some success at in the past, won the championship obviously in 2020. And um, yeah, and just, uh, I mean, what a, what a sort of career progression, if, you, if progression is the right word, deterioration from uh, world champion to, to where he's at now. Uh, just a rotten season, rotten finish. And uh, a pain in the neck being a euphemism, really. Yeah. I interviewed him on Tuesday and all he was talking about was uh, I want to see the new bike on Tuesday. I want to see the new bike on Tuesday. Expectations for this weekend? I want to see the new bike on Tuesday. That's it. Blame Dave. You know, he just created it all from the beginning. Joan Mirbelli lodging, you know, half a dozen laps around Valencia before thinking of Tuesday and ended up in the gravel. So there we go. Poor Joan Mir. Um, winners, guys. Uh well the, the the winner are well the winners are everyone who's not on a Ducati because of the new concessions team but I think especially the uh the Japanese factories 
uh, for the details, I've, I mean, you know, MotoGP.com have published the uh, the details. Uh, all of the news websites are carrying them. I have it on MotoMatters.com. Everyone else, go to wherever you get your um, uh, stuff from. What's the gist, though? The Dave? gist is basically, if you're successful, you get less testing. Um, you get no wild cards. Less tires. You get fewer tires. Um, and uh, fewer testing through the year, that is. Test tires, yeah. Yeah, le- yes, exactly. Not less, during a le- weekend. less testing tires, less less tires for te- for for private testing, um, and also three circuits. Basically, there are four tiers. Um, the uh, KTM and Aprilia get more test tires, um, and they get six wild cards. Ducati get zero wild cards. Uh, but Paul the Apri- McKelly Piro. Uh, yeah, Paul McKelly Piro. Yeah, except well, he's getting on a bit, so um, maybe he'll, he'll, he can just focus on that. Uh, but uh, I think Honda, the, the two um, Japanese factories, they're the big winners because they're getting 260 race tires. Um, they also get to use their contracted riders in private tests, which is a really really big deal it means that uh, Fabio Quattararo and Alex Rins will be on the bike they'll be able to go to the test with um, uh, with Cal Crutchlow and uh, test the new parts I think the biggest thing is apart from getting extra engines and, and an extra uh, aero update per year they also get uh, they're allowed to develop the engines through the no year no engine freeze yeah exactly yeah, that's Th- big that's, yeah. that is a that's a really big Huge. Th- that's a re- even though I mean realistically what they will be bringing uh, they might bring one maybe two uh, engines updates through the year because the engine updates take a lot to to uh, to develop they might make make sort of smaller changes but um uh, yeah they the, there's a system where it's split into two season halves and so you will be measured halfway through the season to see you know whether you're making improvement or not and you can get bumped up categories and all the rest so it's quite it's a very complicated system um but it is giving the japanese factories uh, a chance to catch up a little bit yeah, and considering the, the 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 sort of the base of the the issues suffered by Yamaha and Honda this year stem from their respective engines, the uh, freeing up the engine freeze I think is a massive thing. Yeah, the engine freeze came into play really to cut costs in MotoGP, but now the leash has been let off, and I do wonder how much Yamaha and Honda will be able to profit from that. I, again, Davis, one something that's been talked about for quite a while. So you imagine there is somebody in management level in Honda and Yamaha rubbing their hands and getting ready for this. Uh, it was it was in the pipeline. So I hope the hope plans have been made. Yeah, I mean the 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 one thing about Honda is if you talk to Joan Mir, he will say you know it's it's not the engine, it's just the electronics. They need to fix the electronics, um, uh, but you can also help a little bit with the engine by having a better uh, by having just a smoother engine. Yeah, and you know Yamaha need to not just address the issues with the bike, but also with the testing program. Because one of the things Carl Crutchlow said during the weekend when he was interviewed on the live was, we can't have these 16, 17-week spells where we're not testing at all. It has to be regular. We can't just go testing at the start of the year, then during the summer break. What's the point in that? We need to do it sort of more regularly. So it's it's kind of about the program that needs to improve. And with this opportunity, I think Fabio said it back in, Fabio Cordero said it back in, in Sepang, we have to take advantage of this because realistically, we're not going to have it for that many seasons. I do wonder how the riders will be able to do it though with 22 Grand Prix and three one-day tests and during the season itself. I mean, that's an extra, a big extra workload. But then, you know, if if Quartararo is that desperate, you know, he'll get on a plane and make it happen. Yeah, I mean, what you would expect is for Quartararo, for the, for the contracted riders to do it 
occasionally in between uh, when there is a week off in between, or for example during the summer break, where we've got what is it three weeks a, a three week summer break, uh, they could easily do it that. But they're not going to be going, you know, on, on the back to back weekends. They're not going to be sort of you know flying to Jerez quickly to put in a few laps to to get that done. And the testing is still going to be limited just by just by tires. The big thing about having the extra tyres, because the Yamaha's biggest problem is the fast lap, also to an extent the Honda, um, you can only really test a fast lap with brand new tyres. Um, that is because once you've you know got two or three tire, uh, three laps on, the best is off, and you can't practice a qualifying lap. So I think uh, having those extra tyres is also going to make a big difference to them. Uh, coming back to winners, uh, on the track, I'm going to plump for Yumo Sasaki because uh, I think it was the eighth time this season where he was leading on the last lap and he actually managed to win. So fair play to the Japanese, um, confirming second place in the championship. Hashtag now- give the title to Sasaki. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's about to enter the Bermuda Triangle that is Moto2 for riders' careers. So I, I do wonder how things will go for the Japanese. He was... The, one of the most experienced riders in Moto3. And, uh, you know, we all know how the championship dispute ended up in Qatar. And Jamal Masia had a stinker as well. I think he got like one point yesterday, Neil, 15? Uh, three. So he was just inside the top 15, yeah. So, I mean, uh, and still celebrated his championship, which is a bit of a strange thing. Like a, well, what do you expect him to do? Not celebrate it? Well, he'd already done it. It's in the Qatar. highlight of his career. It's a little bit of a full kit wanker thing to me. He's already celebrated it. I mean, Yeah, but on. what can you do in Qatar? Yeah. <laughs> Can't go out in the rise there. Well, you no, you could go out for it. You go out for a nice sparkling water. Yeah, but a bit of a crappy number one on your bike and just have fun. Yeah, you know? that well. wasn't particularly crappy number one. <laughs> We're not going to get onto the number ones again. Off the track, I want to say that I, I thought, as we said at the top of the show, the Grand Prix was fantastic. I think Dorna can look around the paddock. They can look around the circuit. Everything that about the Grand Prix just screams that MotoGP is in rude health. Uh, from what I understand, I don't know if it's true, but I think Formula One has scrapped their sprint system. There's not actually going to be any uh, Formula One sprints in 2024. As it currently stands, MotoGP is going to have a full slate again. But I don't think you can argue that, the, of course, there's been more pressure on the riders as we, we've known from the beginning of the season. But otherwise, it's had a tremendous impact and effect on MotoGP. And you could see that on Saturday at Valencia. It really just turned into a whole weekend spectacle and um it's it's just i i found it incredibly invigorating to be part of um an event like that yeah because we had a, the attendance on saturday on sunday was uh what ninety three thousand, uh and but on friday i was really surprised by the attendance on saturday because it was 80 odd thousand i can't remember the exact number but it was absolutely massive one of the biggest numbers oh you know eighty thousand is respectable it's more than we get on a sunday a, a lot of races so yeah it, you can't argue that it hasn't worked whether it's good for the sport or not it's a separate discussion um which is far too long to get into now but uh, yeah, you can't argue that it hasn't been successful. Winter podcast, yeah. Save it for winter the winter podcast. podcast. Yeah, I'm my Save your ammo. Keeping my powder dry. Chill, yeah. Neil, we know you're a winner, so uh, you can't nominate yourself in this category. But uh, well, we'll ask for your um, victor. For me, the dream. The man that won his fourth Model 2 race in succession was uh, was my big winner. Uh, what an end of the season for Fumin Aldeguer. Absolutely sensational. I think he was my winner last week, but you know what? I'm just going to go for Fermin once again because he's been wonderful. Uh, just a quick thing. Interesting speaking to someone yesterday in the paddock, uh, someone that works for Dunlop. Obviously, the Dunlop uh, tires are very, very hard uh, for the Model 2 class, front and rear. They were saying that 
Aldeguer's success is down to, from their belief, the Bosque Scuro chassis is just a little better suited to loading the rear tyre, to generating a bit of grip. They've obviously got the carbon fibre swing arm, um, really stiff chassis compared to the Calyx, which is a bit softer, a bit more gentle. Um, and this certain person was telling me, put Pedro Acosta on that bike from the start of the season, he would have won every race by eight seconds. I think that's maybe been a, doing a bit of a disservice to, to Fermin Aldeguer, but I think what we've seen in recent weeks is that Bosque Scuro has actually been probably... Uh, competitive enough to fight for the championship and it's just taken for me a bit of time to find the setup and the confidence obviously because he's still a very young rider coming to terms with life in the the world championship um to extract the maximum of it but brilliant what i also love about for this whole thing that's been going on in the last couple of weeks will he go to MotoGP gp next year will he or won't he um he it would be so so easy for an 18 year old to throw his toys out of the pram to have his head turned but he's kind of kept his eyes firmly on the prize in moto 2 and hasn't really taking the news that he's not going to MotoGP next year uh, with um, any any kind of um, of anger or bitterness. Um, and the first rider since 2010 to win four successive races in Moto2, only the second rider in Moto2 history. Um, yet for me and Aldeguer, what an end of season. Also, we have to mention Digia, another brilliant weekend from him. Um, had a dodgy tyre, I think, in, in qualifying, so he was down in 11th. Fought Peko right until the end. A brilliant comeback from 11th on the grid to fight for the win on the last lap um obviously front tire pressure then um so I'm chucked off the grid sorry chucked off the podium but great end of season for Digia and he's been confirmed next year with VR46 Ducati so rightfully deserves a place in the MotoGP grid for 2024. I would have been really interested to see how Pedro Acosta had would have reacted if Fabien Aldeguer was also going to MotoGP because you really felt like Pedro Acosta just like sacked it off uh, uh, let Fermin win everything, um, but Fermin's uh, like his his speed was just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but you did think you did wonder whether anyone was putting up any resistance. And on a side note, Aldeguer with his result confirming third position in the World Championship, um, leapfrogging Jake Dixon at the last. So you know he got his his just desserts for a, a fantastic second half of the season. Yeah, and to be fair to Dixon, he said Fermin deserved it. Yeah, you know he's been awesome in the last couple of races, and he said fair play to him. Yeah, and did you? I mean, I asked him today. He gave his first sort of uh, media debrief as a, a non-Grassini rider, not yet quite a Mooney VR46 rider. Uh, and I just said, you know, how does it feel when you dedicate your whole life to doing something and then your career just turns around in the space of a month? But he was already kind of moving past that. He's like, I've earned my place in MotoGP. I'm looking ahead. Uh, he has to um, get used to the whole VR46 system now. So, uh, yeah. Some exciting times. Let's see what more he can do. Uh, what will be on a GP23 next year. Yeah, so a year old bike, but still a championship winning bike. Guys, thank you ever so much for listening and following the podcast through the racing season. We've already got content planned through the off-season and the winter, so keep following us. We will be posting weekly shows, also stuff on Patreon. We've got some in- interesting interviews coming up. Dave, who else have you got in your fridge? You spoke to Gabarini, so that's already on Patreon, but you got someone else over the weekend. Giacomo Guidotti, uh, uh, I got, I've got Paolo Ciabatti tomorrow, so yeah, all sorts. Yeah, Daniele Romagnoli, Martins crew chief, Ciabatti as well, Matteo Flamini, Pizzecchi's crew chief, Lucio Cecchinello, lots of stuff to keep us occupied, keep our Patreon supplied through the winter months. Uh, we also spoke with Freddie Spencer because it's now 40 years since he won his uh, world championship, his first world championship after Julian McKenney Roberts all the way down to the last round. So that's also particularly relevant. We'll probably have that on next week's show to listen to too. Guys, as always, send us comments on Twitter or X, Paddock Pass Pod. Twitter. Twitter, okay. Uh, also through Patreon, if you're listening on that platform, 
Otherwise, keep an eye on the stream because we will be back. Thanks again to Rental Street. David, thank you ever so much for your energy and your rebounding enthusiasm and positivity. Yeah, well, I've been I've been ill all weekend. I barely know how I got through it, but I'm feeling really pretty. I'm raring to go. It's the test. I'm excited about the test. Same to you, Neil. Also for those bassy tones on Moto2 and Moto3 comms, what a, what a marathon stint it's been this season. So uh, props to you, my friend. Thank you. Good stuff. Pleasure and thanks, as always. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.